Genesis Foundation. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes. Many thanks to our friends at Dublab and Anasis Alai for bringing in-depth conversations with writers, artists, musicians, philosophers and thinkers of our time. Paul Holdengreber, the regular host of the programme, asked me to guest host today. I have invited Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, foreign correspondent reporting from war-torn Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, the Middle East, from the Balkans, from Gaza, He's also a Presbyterian minister. Also, some of my favorite books, extraordinary, startling books. War is a force that gives us meaning, empire of illusion, death of the liberal class, days of destruction, days of revolt, wages of rebellion, America, the farewell tour. Welcome to Quarantine Types, Chris. Thank you. Uh, you know, during this pandemic, I often wondered uh, what you thought about this year, year and a half. Um, the reason is because I always thought that you belong to this rare breed of thinkers, that you always had the courage to say the unsayable. And I wondered what are the first things that occurred to you during the pandemic? What was revealed? Well, pandemics will become part of our future, uh, courtesy of climate change. So this is not the first uh, and it won't be the last. The you know increase in the transmission of viruses through animals is going to become more commonplace and probably more virulent. That's the first thing. Secondly, the pandemic revealed the inability of a for-profit healthcare system to respond rationally to a crisis. Uh, it wasn't just Trump. We've known for some time that we would face a serious pandemic. Uh, there was no Uh, preparation, no national coordination. Uh, Trump, of course, was a disaster, but the one thing he did right was throw a lot of money at these for-profit companies like Moderna and Pfizer uh, because they don't deal with vaccines. Vaccines are not where the money is. Uh, they deal with these high-end, uh, you know, cancer drugs and this, especially chronic illnesses. So my feeling was it's just another death rattle. Uh, on the part of the American empire, uh, and not uh, unexpected, and I think a harbinger of what we're going to have to face, perhaps in more virulent forms in the years ahead. You know, my grandmother, Irina, uh, was a doctor, but straight out of um, medical school, um, a young girl in the late 1930s, she was sent to Siberia to fight scurvy. Now, the interesting thing about that was that uh, she was sworn under um, the threat of death penalty to secrecy. And um, she was a very intelligent woman, and she knew what that meant. Why the secrecy? 
because in um, the ideology and the paradise on earth that um, you know was just about around the corner in the Soviet Union, uh, there could not be a disease of poverty, scurvy, something that you know um, sailors had when they uh, crossed the ocean for the most part and ran out of food. And here we had that. And um, she thought that, by and large, that pandemics reveal what society can or cannot do. And they reveal the stark and startling truth about society, or perhaps that there is no society, especially what society does. And what was interesting about Soviet Union was that uh, the facts, not only interpretation, but the facts were patrolled. So you couldn't have access to facts, and the interpretations were given by ideology. And here the facts are actually in the open, but I found that the interpretations are highly patrolled. And the message is really within the very narrow bounds of what is allowed. One of the strange and unsayable things became the extraordinary expenditure during the time of pandemic to the military corporations. And I wonder what do you think it reveals about this country? Well, uh, yes. Uh, I mean, you're right. The military, which accounts for 38% of military spending worldwide, isn't capable of dealing with the uh, existential crisis that faces us. So all these satellites and aircraft carriers and warplanes and uh, warships and nuclear submarines and missiles and etc. are useless against pandemics or against the climate crisis. And what are we doing? I mean, we're, we've just authorized $1.2 trillion to modernize the nuclear arsenal. Uh, this isn't going to mitigate the suffering that's caused by collapsing environments. It isn't going to solve the poisoning and sickening of whole populations. Uh, I mean, air pollution alone kills an estimated 200,000 Americans a year. Children in cities like Flint are damaged for life because of contamination from lead uh, in the drinking water. Uh, and then uh, on the top of it, the U.S. military emits 1.2 billion metric tons of carbon emissions uh, or emitted them between 2001 and 2017. That's twice the annual output of the pass of, of the country's passenger vehicles. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's this kind of foolish uh, response uh, on the part of uh, military-industrial complex that we can no longer control. Uh, we know these zoonotic diseases are going to become uh, more prevalent. Uh, HIV-AIDS alone has killed 36 million people. But then on top of it, we've had the avian flu, the swine flu, Ebola. COVID's killed about 4 million people across the globe. And then on top of it, we have the misuse of antibiotics by the animal agriculture industry. That accounts. The animal agriculture industry accounts for about 80% of antibiotic use. And that has produced these strains of bacteria that are antibiotic resistant and fatal. So we're, we're barreling towards another version of the Black Death, uh, which in the 14th century killed between 775 and 200 million people. About half of Europe's population was wiped out. And that's probably an inevitability as long as pharmaceutical and medical industries are configured to make money 
and as long as we squander our resources in military adventurism that, in fact, doesn't address in any way the real existential threat that faces not only the United States, but the human species. But that is a fascinating uh, situation because essentially the setup, the the pandemic gave us an ultimatum. Either you sober up and uh, find a way to live a sustainable life and um, somehow make the planet a home and not some sort of a, a place to pillage, that the system itself, the risk built up on the system itself to such a degree that it's kind of a runaway train. Yeah, I think it is an ultimatum. And what's the response? Exactly. Biden increase, increases the Defense Department's budget by $11.3 billion. And remember, Trump increased it by 10% even that far. That's $750 billion directly, but with all the other costs, we're, we're spending about a trillion dollars a year. And this is true of late empires. I mean, it's, it's true of the Roman Empire. You, you squander your diminishing resources on the military, uh, and you essentially hollow the country out from the inside. That's right. Thucydides actually writes about it with the expansion of the Athenian Empire and, and writes that the tyranny that Athens imposed on others it finally imposed on itself. So you have 81 million Americans who can't meet basic household expenses. You have 22 million Americans that are food insecure. Uh, you have 11 million Americans that can't make their next house payment. Uh, and this is all these unemployment benefits run out the end of July. Uh, you lift the moratorium on foreclosures and evictions. Uh, and that machinery of predatory capitalism, which is really the engine behind all of this, goes right back into, you know, jumps right back into high gear with all of the kind of attendant social problems that it brings. We've already seen in many urban areas a uh, sharp rise in crime because there's a growing desperation and an inability on the part of the corporate state, which Biden was anointed, selected to run, uh, to deal with the structural, all of the structural issues that are plaguing us. But perhaps it's not really even Trump or Biden. It's not personalized. It's just the system itself. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's personal in this sense, in that Trump right. was an embarrassment to the empire. And uh, he, of course, inept and impulsive and everything else. And uh, Biden brings back the kind of decorum that the uh, managers of empire prefer. Uh, and the, the major donors in the Democratic Party, Lord Blankfein, who had been the CEO of Goldman Sachs, and others were very clear that if somehow Bernie Sanders was the nominee, uh, they would vote for Trump. Uh, so uh, they didn't like Trump, but they could live with Trump. Uh, I find Sanders, if you notice, was very careful not to confront the war industry. That's right. Um, and which is the fundamental issue. You can't build an equitable social society when you have a kind of military apparatus that is unaccountable and uncontrollable. So, I mean, there's very little difference on the major issues between the Democrats and the Republicans. There are on cultural issues, but those are not politics. That's, in fact, a form of anti-politics. But on all of the issues, I mean, the Democrats are not are voting for this defense budget, along with the Republicans. 
the Democrats have done nothing to halt wholesale surveillance exposed through the courage of Edward Snowden. Uh, they haven't. I mean, even Biden's very tepid campaign promises have not been fulfilled. He said he would send out two thousand dollar checks. That didn't happen. He, which is, it all gets sucked up by credit card industry and landlords anyway. It's a one-shot deal, largely symbolic. Uh, he talked about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, uh, you know, and he's meeting with the Saudis uh, when he promised uh, to stand up to the Saudis over the murder of my friend, Jamal Khashoggi. So Biden, like Obama, is... There is a difference in terms of style, but not in any deep way. Exactly. Substance. You know, I'll say that Trump was more aggressive in going after the EPA and privatizing education through Betsy DeVos. But Arne Duncan, who was Obama's secretary of education, was a huge proponent of the charter school industry. So it's a matter of degree. There is a difference in terms of degree, but not in the trajectory itself. Yeah. And of course none of it would be possible if there wasn't a whole history and a culture of dehumanization afoot. And it struck me when I read uh, this pandemic here, the book by Leslie Bloom, Fallout, about the story of how John Hersey went to Hiroshima a year after the nuclear bombing uh, by the Truman administration and how he collected it, but in a way even more stunning was the circumstances under which the story was published, because uh, the editors at the time, William Sean and Harold Ross, uh, ran a fake parallel uh, issue of the New Yorker magazine that was never going to be and never meant to be published, so that they could secretly, clandestinely, published John Hersey's long uh, story, long essay about uh, the severed lives of people that went through and survived the uh, nuclear bombing of Hiroshima. And I wondered how peculiar that they had to do it that way, because after all, it was not a secret. Uh, the Mushrooming Cloud was published macabre way graced the mainstream media at the time in 1945, 1946, before Hersey's story came out. And of course, it was the humanization of the victims that made the story so terribly dangerous to such a degree that the savvy editors of The New Yorker had to clandestinely print that that uh, story. And uh, I wondered how incredibly efficient and um, just kind of professional the system of public relations was. And you saw it in recent years when Sarah uh, Hirsch, Bob Shear, you, Chris, even Phil Donahue were essentially marginalized out of the um, main outlets and the media because you were not with the program on the militarization and of the wars. Yeah, that's how they work. When you cross that line, you are, uh, and that's just the history of uh, journalism, there are very clear demarcation. The United States, you're right, there was no secret that they dropped the bomb. 
but then they made, immediately made Hiroshima and Nagasaki closed military zones uh, because they didn't want the human consequences of uh, those nuclear devices and what they'd done to innocent civilians, neither of those cities were military targets given to the public. So you had, you know, for weeks and months afterwards, uh, nobody really knew uh, about the radiation sickness. And between locking reporters out and censorship, it it didn't get out. Uh, You know, even when the New York Times ran a UPI dispatch from Hiroshima, the censors uh, took out all the references to radiation poisoning. So it's it's not new. Um, and, you know, it goes all the way back to figures like Ida B. Wells, who exposed the fact that most of those people being lynched, and she was based in Memphis, it was largely economic. It was, it was the fact that you had black businesses and black doctors who white capitalists felt were competition, and not this trope of, you know, black men raping white women. And, of course, the reality is that no black woman uh, was safe. Uh, Rape was both during slavery and afterwards the kind of national support of white southern males. Um, So, yeah, it's not new. You pay a price for defying those centers of power. Um, Cy Hirsch, our greatest investigative reporter, at this point can't even publish in in the United States. That's right. Oh, yeah. So it's it's not new. Right. But, but it's it's interesting because it's not only uh, journalists. Um, after the recent comeback, sort of a, a glorious comeback of uh, red baiting and the demonization of Russia, I decided to take a look at the historical precedents of demonization and who was called Kremlin agents at their time in mainstream media. It actually involved not only Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, but also JFK, RFK. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was regularly called a Kremlin agent. And, um, you know, nearly half of Hollywood, many writers, union leaders, and recently Jill Stein, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I mean, Bob Marley and Beatles were called the agents of Kremlin, not just, you know, Julian Assange and Snowden and uh, the greatest American journalists like you or Cy Hirsch or Bob Scheer. It seems like the system in an evolutionary manner manages to control anyone who, like Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, tried to humanize the marginalized. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, these uh, systems of power function by creating demonic enemies. Uh, and, I mean, Orwell got it. When, they, when the enemies don't exist, they'll fabricate them. The last few years, the Democratic Party has perhaps been the most egregious example of this. They, will, yes. they blamed Russia for the election of Donald Trump. Now, not only is it ridiculous, because the country that interferes most in our electoral process is Israel, and everyone should watch the Al Jazeera documentary, The Lobby, which the Israel lobby managed to get banned from Al Jazeera, but there's a pirated copy up on Electronic Intifada, where a reporter uh, goes undercover. It's all on tape. It's all there. So the Democrats, uh, you know, Clinton turbocharged this neoliberal assault. 
they don't want to accept the blame, so they shift it. Um, but it means that, of course, the power centers within the Democratic Party, uh, Pelosi, Schumer, or Biden, are not addressing the deep social inequality that uh, is pushing uh, larger and larger segments of the American working class into the hands of this kind of proto-fascist movement, which Trump didn't create. Trump responded to it. The Christian right has been building this for decades, and I have written, and I, as a seminary graduate, consider them heretics and Christo-fascists. I don't use those terms lightly. I look at it as a political movement. Uh, The fact that they cloak themselves in this moral garb and then are able to embrace a figure like Trump, I think, exposes them completely for who they are. Uh, but yes, you you know that's the price you're going to pay. Uh, and I worked as I have Stone did and others. Cy Hirsch did as well. Cy was at the New York Times as well for a while. You know you can work inside those institutions, but uh, if you don't uh, finally bend, if you're if you're not willing to serve the interests uh, of those institutions, they're going to push you out. They're going to get rid of you. And that, of course, happened to Bob Shear at the LA Times. And, Yes. And myself and others, that that's the price you pay. Um, you either conform or you're marginalized. And it's extraordinary, uh, these extraordinary stories, this kind of kabuki theater, the the uh, fantastical place that Viet Cong was just about to disembark in San Diego. And that, you know, Muslims were all running some sort of terrorist cells, uh, no matter where they were. And uh, then the demonization and dehumanization of Russians and now Chinese. It's sort of a nonstop machinery that's churning out the uh, hatred towards the other, but also hatred within the United States. And Matt Taibbi in Hate Inc. beautifully uh, describes how this kind of... uh, something that calls itself news outlets actually is televangelism. Yeah, I think it's a very good book, uh, Hate, Inc., which, of course, has Rachel Maddow on one side of the cover and Sean Hannity on the other. Yes. Uh, and he's right. that the it, And Manufacturing Consent by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky was sort of the classic study of the press, uh, but it's different than it was during Manufacturing Consent because they don't have a monopoly, these large media platforms. So... What they've done is uh, siloed the demographics and catered to that specific demographic while, of course, demonizing the opposing demographic. And the New York Times is guilty of this. So they slogged the Russiagate. Then we had this horrible series, the Caliphate, which as someone who spent seven years in the Middle East, I smelled from the beginning a rat. Uh, But it played to the image of um, Muslim was kind of audio snuff porn, stabbing, crucifying people and stabbing them into the heart, this kind of ridiculous stuff. So you have the Pew uh, Research Center did a poll a few months ago, I think it was about a year ago now, and they, and you found that uh, 87% of the people who listen to NPR identify as registered Democrats, uh, 94% that watch MSNBC, I think it's 91% that read the New York Times. And so there's no price to pay as long as you cater to the world view and the, mo- the emotional proclivities of the Democrat, the demographic you're serving, then uh, even when you're wrong, it doesn't matter. Uh, and that is a widened divide, very similar to what I witnessed in the former Yugoslavia covered the war there for The New York Times, where people retreated into their peculiar ethnic group and created a kind of fictional narrative. And at that point, there's no dialogue because nothing based on historical or verifiable fact. 
Uh, and that's where we're moving. And that, that is a, a road towards fratricide. So you have uh, tens of millions of people now in the United States who are, and, and, the, and the media landscape, even the traditional media has exacerbated this. They can't communicate with each other. And that's extremely dangerous. But it's, it's the profit model for the new media. And, uh, and they're not about to give it up. I mean, look at CNN. They're just shameless. Uh, but it's very, very dangerous. Chris, um, once in a while, um, and especially in the very beginning of, um, um, you know, new dehumanization of the new bed um, du jour, the new monster of the day, uh, you see a little bit of a reluctance among the media personalities. And then all of a sudden you realize that they go through a period of self-hypnosis, perhaps even self-mesmerism. And um, the terrifying thing about it at this point uh, that it's happening to the United States and not in, let's say, former Yugoslavia, which you covered very well, and you saw this happening to the political elite that essentially gets uh, disengaged from anything remotely resembling reality. In this case, we're talking about the political class that is in charge of a giant nuclear arsenal. And uh, we talked about just during the time of a pandemic when the nuclear arsenal was just got another trillion or so. And um, the sort of a uh, lull in a major war that uh, we have had so far since 1945, some people interpreted as the mutually assured destruction that uh, saved us from it. Some people interpreted was that because it was a negotiation. I always suspected it was the fact that the world ran out of war. People smelled the war. They felt it still in their bones. Uh, JFK, he went to war. He was a, he knew what it meant. And perhaps that's why he wasn't bloodthirsty enough that even the Bay of Pigs wouldn't, you know, budge him into a war with Cuba. And I think that's restraint. The self-restraint, this this knowing, this running out of of air, of blood um, that held us back. And I am afraid that this is no longer true. And I think that the, in recent decades, the sort of proverbial West in particular went through a stage of self-hypnosis and self-mesmerism on a scale that is very hard to describe. And the extraordinary competence in infotainment and entertainment solidified the sort of a self-serving role and this kind of false sense of invincibility and created an entire political class that no longer knows where the boundaries of survival are. And the truth of the matter is that we've made it by the skin of our teeth. So many times there were close calls and geese flew over there and uh, an officer on the ground didn't push the button to respond in the Soviet Union. Geese flew over here and Brzezinski just in time got to note that these were geese. I mean, goddamn the geese. Um, this incident with Abel Archer and so on, we literally are extraordinarily lucky. And if you listen to the tapes that have now become public about uh, JFK sitting and deciding to nuke or not to nuke, he's actually alone. 
and and I keep thinking that it is restraint and connection to reality of the political class that allowed us to survive. Because after all, we keep forgetting to be afraid of a nuclear war, of an all-out war. I mean, there will be no environment left. Right. I, I think that any, you know, the problem is that after the devastation of the war, this was true in the American Civil War, it was true after World War One. there is a kind of repugnance. Uh, so after the American Civil War and after yes. World War One, the arms industries were dismantled. Uh, the arms industries uh, fabricated in large part the Cold War uh, because it was very profitable. But you're right that a, that a country, I mean, you take almost 100 years of peace before World War One. Uh, there was nobody in Europe that had any conception of what war was unless it was going off to Umdurman with a Gatling gun and mowing down Sudanese who were charging at you with muskets and spears, which was almost a, a kind of sick sport. Uh, Churchill writes about it in the River War for the European elites. So, yes, I think that that is always uh, dangerous. That, uh, and, of course, with the forever wars, only a tiny demographic of people forced into the military because of yes. economic distress fight the war. And uh, everybody else, especially the middle class, and uh, they can have lived as if these wars have not existed. So, yes, I think that that loss of contact. And then you have figures like Trump or like Biden who are draft dodgers. They, uh, and I didn't support the Vietnam War, obviously, yeah. but they... They uh, they got out of it because they had the capacity to get out of it. So yes, I think that that's you're right that the it's not just the elites but the wider population itself uh, loses touch with the reality of war, and that makes a devastating war and potentially a nuclear war uh, more likely. It probably won't come against Russia, uh, but you know we're we're going all over you know into China's. Uh, traditional territorial waters, including off of Taiwan and everything else, poking sticks at them. And it's if you go back and read the folly that Barbara Tuckman wrote two good books on it, The Proud Tower and The Guns of August, you just had these inept monarchies that stumbled into what became collective suicide for right. Russia and for Europe. So Yes, I think you raise a good point. I know uh, Cy Hirsch uh, loves to say the world is run by the nincompoops. <laughs> I quite yeah. like the word. And uh, if you look at the bird's eye view, that if you see that the entire political and managerial class are financially beholden to the military industrial complex, so is the Pentagon, so are the clandestine agencies. And no immediate keeps them in check. Um, in, in fact, I mean, I mean, when, when uh, one of the horrors of the Second World War was the site of the industrialization of murder, when they saw the concentration camps, was, uh, one of the shocking things was how industrialized murder was. Be but that was the industrial age, so the murder too would be industrialized. And we're living in the financial age, so it's likely to be financialized. But it's also profoundly cultural. And another book that I found striking this year was a, a book that I think didn't get enough attention, a writer of our time about John Berger, written by Joshua Sperling. 
uh, I always loved John Berger, but I, I, I found I, I didn't have the context because what John Berger culturally was fighting for, which he called realism, but actually he was fighting for humanism, um, when the Cold War was just hitting up in the 50s and the 60s, and then in disgust he just leaves London and uh, becomes a farmer in, in France, and he loses that battle, that war, but he was right. And I thought that it was struck at the day of the election of Donald Trump. Somehow a, a dark thought occurred to me that somehow the diamond skull of Damien Hurst, the golden dogs of Jeff Koons, and an unironic golden toilet of this now, at the time, sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump, made entire sense. Somehow it all was coherent. This all-out dehumanization, cultural, in the media, in the society, broke um, the social bonds in a way that is most profound, not only institutionally, but in our minds. How can we restore these bonds? Well, that's my last book, <laughs> taken from Durkheim, Anomie. It's called America, the Farewell Tour, and it's about yes. the self-destructive pathologies that grip individuals and societies when those social bonds are ruptured. That's the point of Durkheim's book, Suicide, where he makes a study of uh, those societies and individuals who uh, carry out acts of self-annihilation, you have to recreate those social bonds. And if they're not recreated, and of course we are now moving to further weaken and destroy those social bonds given the wounds, the economic wounds of the pandemic, then you will continue to give rise to these frightening personal and political pathologies uh, that characterize the United States, whether it's mass shootings or the opioid crisis or the rise of Christo-fascism or white hate groups. And Durkheim writes, I think, quite presciently that those who seek the annihilation of others are driven by desires for self-annihilation. Right. Uh, so it, it's quite clear that the social bonds have to be re-knit. That is the problem. And this is uh, my frustration with the attempt to find foreign scapegoats. Uh, it's Russia. Or even to scapegoat Trump. Trump is uh, responding to a phenomenon. He didn't create it. Trump is the symptom, not the disease. And if you don't address the disease, and the Biden administration is not addressing the disease, uh, all of these pathologies will be compounded and expand. So uh, we know what has to be done. Uh, Roosevelt did it during the New Deal. Yes. 12 million jobs created by the government. Social. Right. Security, legalizing unions like the United Mine Workers Union that had been declared illegal in the 1920s, the legalizing uh, the United Auto Workers Union, especially after the big sit down strikes in Flint and uh, other cities. So we know what the response is, but unfortunately, the global ruling elite, which has consolidated wealth in ways that are uh, completely new, I think when David yes. Rockefeller spoke at my prep school graduation, died. He was worth about $3 billion. Bezos and Elon Musk alone are worth $180 million, maybe more now. Um, and that concentration of wealth into the hands of a tiny oligarchic cabal, which is unaccountable, uncontrollable, doesn't pay taxes, 
uh, have essentially, you know, legalized a tax boycott means that the social inequality, which is ultimately the engine of this kind of darkness, uh, expands with all of the consequences uh, that are going to be seen. I mean, look at what's happening now in, in Colombia. Yeah. Uh, 42% of the population lives below the poverty line. That means they don't, they can't eat three meals uh, a day. Right. Uh, and, uh, and we're not immune from that, those kinds of crises. But you see, and of course, Colombia's internal security forces as well as armed forces were, are largely a product of uh, U.S. money and and yes. U.S. technology. Uh, you know, we, we we have militarized our own police forces. There's armored personnel carriers with 50 caliber machine guns on the streets of Ferguson. Uh, that's that. It's not a mystery for anybody right. who who has read even a little bit of history. That's right. what, where we're headed, and and that's my big fear that that uh, the, the country just unravels to an extent where violence becomes the primary form of communication, both by the state and by those who oppose the state. I hope that collective insight might put a break on that. What do you think? Well, unfortunately, the ruling elites are utterly subservient to global por- corporate power, right. as well as the war industry. Uh, the press is completely bought off, uh, so there's no – they're beholden, of course, to advertisers. So we're not even having the discussion, and people aren't even asking the questions. That's right. And that's frightening. That's that's where I think is the trouble. But um, we can go on forever. Uh, we can go on for hours, days, and weeks talking about this, and hopefully enough people read – and think on their own. Uh, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us at the Quarantine Tapes. And thank you very much for your writing, for your work. Thank you. And for thinking on your own. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support. 